and welcome to another episode of Planet B, Everything Must Change. I'm Harpreet Kaur-Paul. This episode features an extended edition of our interview with economist and academic Jayati Ghosh. Ghosh featured in our recent Planet B documentary on debt, which you can find on the Navarra Media Podcast feed. Before we get started, a reminder that you can order a free copy of Perspectives on a Global Green New Deal, the illustrated book on which this series is based, at www.global-gnd.com. My name is Jayati Ghosh. I teach economics. I taught for nearly 35 years in Nehru University in India, and I'm currently teaching at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst in the U.S. So I'm based in both the U.S. and India. Jayati, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to start with what probably seems like a very simple question to you, but could you begin by telling us what debt actually is in your view? What is its function? Well, you know, debt is actually quite a complex issue. Uh, at its simplest level, it is simply the uh, ability to take on some resources and repay them over time, depending on your capacity. And that taking on of this debt uh, can be for investment, it can be for consumption, it can be to meet an immediate need, something extraordinary that you don't normally have to pay for. So there are many reasons why debt is taken on. It is at one level, the very lifeblood of a capitalist market system. Capitalism cannot function without credit, which actually operates to enable companies to carry on with their investments. Working capital, for example, is absolutely basic to any commercial market system. However, debt in its current form extends to many more different areas, and especially with regard to personal debt. There's a massive increase in this because of the growing financialization of our economies in both the advanced economies and in the developing world. So while companies always took on debt, and states also took on debt as well, typically in their own sovereign currencies, in the money that they uh, issue, we now have a situation where states, companies, and households are taking on debt because they are being encouraged to spend beyond what their incomes allow them to do. And that's typically the case for personal debt of households. And more and more of personal expenditure is now mediated through debt, which is part of the process that I just mentioned as financialization health expenditures, which are not covered by the state, which they are in many countries, or which are not covered by the employers, or which are not covered by the broader structures and systems within society, force households to take them on. And usually these are so large that they cannot be dealt with within your current income, and so you take on debt. Education is another area which used to be seen as the domain of the state. It used to be publicly provided and still is in several countries. But a growing share of that is now provided by private practitioners and they charge high rates and therefore households go into debt to get this education. 
there is an entire range of other consumption. I mean, credit card debt is an obvious case as well. But it, what this suggests is that debt has gone beyond this fairly straightforward system which allocates resources of the future for current investment, because investment also is about investing for the future, into something that enables power. So if you wanted a one-word uh, analogy, I would say debt is power. The holding of debt uh, the, confers power on the creditors, and it has increasingly enabled creditors to set terms upon debtors, which are often very onerous, whether they are governments or they are households. And the global architecture, the global financial architecture, actually has reinforced this tendency whereby there is a, a whole hierarchy of both debtors and creditors. So let me give you a few examples. A country that defaults on its debt is usually seen as a pariah in the global system. Okay, So countries like Argentina was uh, everyone said, oh, Argentina has defaulted and it was excluded from global credit markets. It was put through very, very harsh conditionalities. The IMF and everybody else weighed in to make sure that Argentina really suffered because of its inability to pay debt. Yet when this happened to Argentina, it had actually repaid the principal and more. It was just that because it had delayed in some payments, those delays then got added on to the principal at even higher interest rates. And then its attempt to restructure the debt was successful with 85% of the creditors, but the 15% holdout creditors could file a case in the US and demand full repayment, which was impossible for Argentina, and which forced it to become a defaulter. So this is what happens to a developing country that defaults, so-called. By contrast, consider the United States in 1971. Before June 1971, the US had promised to pay any of its creditors the equivalent in gold of any dollar debt that it held. Okay, It had linked the dollar, $35 to one ounce of gold. That was the explicit promise. But then Nixon just gets on television and says, sorry, we are delinking the dollar from gold. So it's a default. It is actually the biggest sovereign default known in the history of the world economy. And yet that's not seen as a default. The U.S. does not suffer for that. This is the 50th anniversary, by the way, of that this summer. And uh, the U.S. gets away with it and completely recasts the global financial system and is able to do that because it is powerful as a debtor. So power permeates debt relationships. The more powerful you are as a debtor, the more you can get away with it. We know that corporate debt, the big corporates get away with absolute murder in terms of not repaying. The smaller companies and the micro enterprises suffer hugely and are made to pay very, very onerously, even when they're unable to repay on time. Similarly, creditors themselves, there's a hierarchy of power. The big global creditors, the big banks, the financial institutions, they can impose all kinds of conditions and they can tell other creditors to keep away from a particular debtor and they can make that debtor's life miserable. A small creditor, let's say I hold something in a pension fund, uh, which I have been paying into regularly throughout all my 35 years of teaching. But that then I have very little say in what will happen to that. And it 
could well be that my entire savings simply disappears because of some big financial scam and I get very little in return because I'm less powerful as even a creditor. So there is a huge power hierarchy in both creditors and debtors and there is power implicit and inbuilt into global debt relationships. The financial architecture at the moment is one that favors the countries of the North and particularly the advanced economies that are merrily issuing as much debt as they like. Their central banks are going absolutely crazy in expanding the liquidity and, uh, you know, really there's no, there seems to be no limit. Whereas for developing countries, all eyes are on the fiscal deficit. How dare you increase it this much? All eyes are on the public debt to GDP ratio and foreign investors mainly threaten them. Credit rating agencies threaten them and say you cannot increase your spending beyond this or your central bank shouldn't be issuing so much more in terms of liquidity. Uh, so there is a massive way in which the global system reinforces these power imbalances. That's really helpful. Thank you very much. And it, it really clearly highlights the ways in which our global financial architecture uses national level debt to to reproduce imperial hierarchies. And, and the example of, of Argentina is really clear in that. And it also reminds me of some of the statements made um, in around 2008, when despite there being kind of regulatory failings, a lot of the, the narratives around households that had taken credit was that they'd been unscrupulous. Um, and this kind of narrative implying that banks and borrowers, whether those borrowers are individuals or states, have equal bargaining power. And, and so describing debt as power is, is really helpful in, in helping to address those kinds of issues. Um, and a framework for, for looking at them. Can you talk about the role of the IMF and the World Bank in this system? What is, what is their function and what is their relationship to indebted nations? This is, a, again, it's a fascinating question because it exposes very clearly the points that I've just been making. One of the most striking things about the IMF in particular over the last 10, 12 years has been the double standards that they have with respect to developing and countries, emerging markets on the one hand, and the advanced economies on the other. So the IMF is known for imposing very serious conditionalities, which mostly involve fiscal austerity, cutting back on public spending, uh, and going in for very regressive taxation, like value-added taxes that fall disproportionately on the poor. So when developing countries approach the IMF, because sometimes because of a shock beyond their control, like the global financial crisis, like the COVID pandemic, they are nevertheless told, well, you have to go out there and behave yourself and cut down on your spending and stabilize your economy and adjust by it. It will be painful, but you have to do it, is what they're still being told to do. By contrast, the advanced economies, which are often the very source of the big crisis, in 2008, it was the United States that was the source. In 2010, it was the Eurozone cut. The advanced economies, suddenly there's a whole different approach where you need to spend more. The IMF in its annual report says the United States needs to spend more in 2008. The government has to increase its spending. In 2020, the same. The IMF is saying is welcoming massive fiscal expansion in the US and the European Union and Japan and elsewhere. It's saying it's necessary to revive the global economy. 
At the same time, it continues to impose the really most counterproductive and punishing austerity on developing countries. So there is, uh, I mean, I, don't, I think it's interesting that there is really no attempt to hide these double standards anymore. And it's particularly astounding given the climate crisis as well and, and the fact that, that Global North countries have disproportionately contributed to the problem and it's often spending uh, nationally that can help increase resilience. But we'll, we'll get to the links between yeah. <laughs> debt and climate change soon. But um, before, before I do that, I wanted to, to ask about the impact of COVID-19 on the indebtedness of, of Global South countries. Um, what has the pandemic shown us about our financial system? I think the fundamental outcome of the COVID-19 pandemic, well, one of the fundamental outcomes is to show that our economic and financial systems are not fit for purpose. The financial system, I mean, what's the purpose of a financial system? It is supposed to mediate between the real economy and those who save and invest. It is supposed to enable resources to move into the areas that society needs. And therefore, it has to also be flexible and responsive. Now, what happened in the pandemic is that, uh, as I said, the rich country governments were able to spend more. They were not punished by financial markets and the IMF and others also welcomed their spending. The advanced economies were able, therefore, to counterbalance the adverse economic impact of this pandemic through much greater public spending. It's true that in the first phase, they were disproportionately hit by the disease as well. In the second phase, that is no longer the case, also because they grabbed the vaccines and did extraordinary vaccine nationalism and IPR imperialism in the process. Uh, but the developing countries were hit by multiple whammies. First, of course, there was the whole fear of the disease and the associated lockdowns that many of them imposed. In fact, some of the uh, poorest countries or the, you know, the least uh, uh, diversified countries were the ones that sometimes imposed the harshest lockdowns that impacted economic activity most severely. Second, uh, they have dominantly more informal workers. 70% of workers in developing countries are informal compared to only 20% in the advanced economies. That means that they should have done much more in terms of social protection. But then third, their public revenues collapsed because the economies collapsed. You know, you can't shut down activity and then expect the economy to grow. So economic activity fell, which meant your ability to raise taxes fell. Export revenues collapsed, especially in the first nine months of 2020. Tourism revenues collapsed. Capital flows were extremely volatile. There was uh, two months, um, I think February and March, when there was a massive outflow from developing countries. Again, for no fault of their own, but just because of the crisis. And then the subsequent recovery of capital flows was very uneven. So developing countries had a real shortage of resources and the governments were particularly tight, uh, cash constrained. Now, unlike the advanced economies, it's true that developing country governments also can simply print money and go ahead, but they will face capital flight when they do that. They will face credit rating agencies telling them, how dare you? They will face the IMF and the World Bank coming down on them heavily, saying, no, no, you have to cut spending. So developing countries have not been able to spend more. 
In fact, many of them have actually spent even less than they did after the global financial crisis. Now, what does it mean? It means that developing countries as a group are not able to come out of that crisis uh, as quickly as the advanced economies are. In addition to that, because the vaccine distribution is so unequal and so obscene, it means that the, the pandemic continues and you're getting newer and newer waves of this pandemic across the developing world so that it's really becoming an endemic disease that will continue to impact on economic activity. So developing countries are facing all these multiple whammies and they are not able to access resources that would enable them to spend more to come out of it, which is what the advanced economies are doing. It is such an obscene divergence. Uh, we are talking about a world that was already unequal, historically very unequal. And now you have added this huge additional element of extreme difference, which is going to create, I believe, a world economy that is absolutely dysfunctional. So it was not fit for purpose, certainly to cope with even the existing situation, but certainly a threat like the pandemic that suggests that it's definitely not fit for purpose to cope with something like climate change. But in addition, it is adding such inequality that we're also looking at explosions socially and politically. And I think that's where citizens of the developed world are being blind if they don't see that this narrow, nationalistic, self-interested approach is not just bad for the world, it's terrible for them because all of this will come back to get them as well. You've started to talk about the climate crisis and and how the system was failing and, and how that's perhaps exacerbated during the climate crisis. And I wanted to kind of move on to bring that in more and, you know, just thinking in terms of an example on this, a country like Senegal emits 10 times fewer carbon emissions compared to me certainly sitting here in, in the UK in Oxford and it's experiencing, it's on the front line of climate crisis with, with droughts uh, causing huge levels of food in, insecurity. And at the same time, public investment that could be securing food and housing and an adequate standard of living, investing in healthcare, education, cleaning air and developing other mechanisms to, to respond to the climate crisis isn't happening. And instead, when commodity prices are falling, um, we've got a system of fossil fuel in, intensive industries and infrastructure. When those commodity prices fall, uh, large and larger proportions of, of available budgets being spent on repaying loans instead of helping communities respond to the climate crisis. And this obviously reveals huge injustices. And you've, you've written a number of concrete proposals for alternative financial governance. Can you expand on your call for an international sovereign debt resolution mechanism and explain why this is particularly necessary in our era of climate breakdown. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, there are a number of things that have to be done immediately. And then, of course, there are medium term concerns as well. But the immediate things, certainly a big issue of global liquidity in the form of special drawing rights uh, that the IMF issues. We are getting one in uh, September, hopefully, uh, of about $650 billion worth, but that's very little. It's not enough. And so we need ways to recycle those that will be provided from the countries that are not using them to countries that will use them. And we need 
um, to make sure that more such liquidity, which is debt-free liquidity, is available to developing countries. Second, we must have a sovereign debt resolution mechanism. We are sitting on unpayable debt globally in large parts of the world. And I repeat, must, most of this is through no fault of the debtors. It's because of these events beyond anyone's control or processes unleashed by the advanced economies. So these are not because a particular country or a government has been profligate and spent too much and so on. These are major shocks that deserve some kind of compensatory mechanism that enables countries to survive. So a sovereign debt resolution mechanism is really a way of doing uh, what is already available in most legal systems in the world to individuals and companies, which is to say some kind of bankruptcy mechanism, some kind of debt workout. So when you get to a situation where a debt cannot be paid, you don't just keep adding to it and kicking the can down the road and saying, well, you can be repay next year or something. You deal with it. You cut down the size of the debt. And this is something that is inevitable in capitalism. If you look at the history of advanced capitalism in the United States, UK, Germany, everywhere, there are periodic uh, changes in which you know, debts are worked out when they are restructured and they are made more viable and feasible. And everybody gets up, dusts themselves on, uh, off and starts all over again. Uh, I think it was Jamie Galbraith who mentioned that uh, uh, someone had said, possibly his father, the famous economist John Kenneth Galbraith, that, you know, basically capitalism every generation or so has to re completely redo its capital stock. And this is inevitable because of the fact that the processes of capitalism generate some unpayable debts. And these become particularly evident when there are shocks and crises. The difficulty, because as I mentioned, debt is power, is that the debtors without power are unable to restructure. And then they are made to do all kinds of really uh, terrible things that further destroy their economies, further reduce the standard of living, further force these countries into less sustainable patterns of production and consumption uh, because they have no alternative. Whereas in the advanced economies, and especially for the big corporate debtors, debt restructuring happens all the time. We desperately need a global system that will enable countries to restructure the unpayable debt I believe there is also a very strong case for a clear system of dealing with what is called odious debt. That is debt taken on by dictators for their self-aggrandizement, self-enrichment that does not benefit the people. And there are many examples of that. And many of these dictators have been propped up by the West, by Western governments. So I think there is a very necessary reason why we must deal with debt workouts for developing countries. And it's not just a question of being good to them and you know, thinking of their welfare and so on. It's because the viability of global finance is otherwise going to be less and less likely. We are going to get implosions of the debt system, which could culminate, as I mentioned earlier, in social and political explosions. But also because in this world of ongoing climate change, it's no longer something in the future. It is something that is happening already. It will require major, major 
uh, investments to deal with and address. The idea that you can protect yourself in one country while everybody else suffers is completely implausible. And so if you force all of these debtor countries into patterns of investment and engagement in, uh, in dealing with climate that are so adverse, then all of that will boomerang on you as well. So there is a very important and urgent reason why debt restructuring, a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism is now so necessary, not just for the debtor countries that would benefit, but for everybody on the planet. There is a third immediate thing we have to do, and that's tax cooperation. I wanted to also kind of introduce this idea of debt actually being owed in some ways in the opposite direction, given that, that between 1850 and 2002 countries in the global north emitted at least three times as many greenhouse gas emissions as countries in the global south, where the majority of the population lives. And these disparities are continuing in terms of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, um, per capita emissions being disproportionately emitted in the global north today as well. And in that context, um, there's, there's arguably a responsibility for equity here as well, um, particularly in light of disparities that are underwritten by legacies of colonialism and slavery as well. But I wanted to also get your view on global public investment. And you've talked about the transfer of green technology and, and there's a kind of equity responsibility basis for this as well. But it'd be good for you to expand on, on what you mean when you talk about the need for global public investment and the transfer of green technologies. Global public investment is an idea that I believe it's time should have come a long time ago. If, if human beings were actually as rational as the economics profession claims, then we would have had global public investment. Why? Because what it is, is a movement away from this whole notion of foreign aid, which is, let's face it, whether we like it or not, it's essentially this sort of patron-client kind of thing, the way global foreign aid is done. And it's seen as a gift of northern countries to the south which is all wrong. The idea of global public investment is that the world as a whole needs certain kinds of investment to deal with human survival. That's really what it's all about. It's ultimately about the survival of humanity as a species on this planet and the survival of the planet itself. It necessarily requires major investments which will not be done by the market, no matter how fancy your uh, various kinds of financial innovation are, it's not going to be done by the market. It has to be done by the public sector, but it has to be done at a global level because these are not forces that recognize barrier, uh, you know, barriers of visas and passports and nations. So we need very, very large, massive public investments which have to be done on a global level to benefit everybody because that's the only way anybody will benefit. These are to do with climate adaptation. They have to do with climate change mitigation. And both of these require lots more dissemination of even the existing technologies. So instead of thinking of foreign aid, we should be thinking of global public investment that every country puts their some resources into this big global pot 
and that pot is then allocated according to immediate and urgent priorities, medium priorities, long-term priorities of investment, because that's really the only way, as I mentioned, that humanity survives in this. And that this is done independent of any financial returns, because that's the whole point. It's not anymore that you know you have to look for a profit rate. That's why it has to be public. You have to do this to enable societies and economies to survive. It also means that when we know, when we have data and information and knowledge about how to deal with certain kinds of climate change, how to protect people in certain situations, how to mitigate, how to go in for better, greener, renewable technologies, we should be sharing that widely as much as possible. We cannot allow intellectual property rights, which let's face it, are an artifact of the last 40 years. We cannot allow this monopoly, private monopoly over necessary social knowledge to inhibit necessary public investment, which is what is happening at the moment. Companies control these technologies. The governments of those, of the, in the countries where those companies are based support those companies in holding on to these technologies, in restricting knowledge. And that is not just shocking, it's stupid because it means that humanity as a whole will not be able to disseminate these technologies quickly enough to deal with this very, very pressing challenge. So what we've seen, let's say for vaccines, where the governments of the advanced countries support their pharma companies in holding on to technologies that were developed with public resources and public subsidies and preventing a wider access that would expand vaccine production that same thing is also happening with respect to climate change mitigation and adaptation. It's not only that you are trying to protect that knowledge and forcing, charging very high uh, rates to even provide a little bit of it, or just holding on to it, monopolizing it and selling the output, the, these machines and things at very high prices. But it's also that when other countries try and subsidize their renewable energy, say China and India with wind engine energy and, social in, and uh, solar energy, then you bring cases against them in the WTO saying that this is anti-competitive behavior. So these are very stupid ways of dealing with what are global crises. We cannot get out of these global crises without thinking globally. Global public investment and open transfer of all the available technologies that will enable humanity to cope with these challenges. These are absolutely necessary. Otherwise, you can imagine that perhaps a century from now, people will come from some distant planet or some other part of the world and come and look at the devastation of a destroyed Earth and say, we were told that there were these beings here. How come they all participated so actively in their own destruction? Yes, certainly a central question. <laughs> As you started to mention, one of your central demands is for global tax cooperation. What does this look like on a global level? And what are the levers of power that have to be pressured in order to make this vision a reality? The uh, demand for global tax cooperation is, at one level, a very, very simple and basic demand. Because it's really not asking for very much. At its essence, what is it saying? It's saying that big companies, multinational companies, and very high net worth individuals, the super rich, should be paying the same tax rate as anyone else. 
Okay, that's all it's saying. So it's not asking for some, you know, major kind of dramatic change. It's simply saying the rules that apply to a worker or a small company should also apply to the employer of that worker and a large multinational company. But that is not how the global tax system works today. There are these enormous loopholes that enable rich individuals to move their assets around and do you know, tax arbitrage, also to move into various tax havens and so on, so as to avoid paying the basic tax rate, which is not available to those who get, let's say, wages and salaries. But even worse, big multinational companies get away with paying almost no tax globally. The big ones, Amazon, Apple, Google, you know, the digital giants for sure, but even the other big multinationals in mining and in all of these other activities, they pay much, much lower taxes than a domestic company doing exactly the same thing. How can that work? It works because they are able, the current global tax system allows what is called arm's length behavior between a multinational company and its subsidiaries. So that Apple France will be different from Apple Ireland, is different from Apple India, is different from Apple US. And they can do this very clever thing by saying that all the intellectual property of Apple is actually created in Ireland. Why Ireland? Because it has a lower tax rate than uh, the other countries. So the other subsidiaries of Apple, Apple India, Apple France, Apple US, all pay huge royalties to Apple Ireland, which may well just be one floor of a big building with, uh, you know, 10 people in it. But they pay huge royalties and therefore they have very low profits in the country in which they're actually selling and operating. So that, uh, you know, you can have very large revenues in a particular country, but your profits may be very low because you're shifting your profits to a low tax jurisdiction. And you can do that because of the way the global tax system is constructed at the moment. And of course, it, there are other things, loopholes that they can take advantage of. There's a famous thing called the double Dutch Irish sandwich because Ireland has a kind of double taxation treaty with the Netherlands, which is also a tax haven. You can say that my, uh, tra- my profits are all made in Ireland, but I'm paying some taxes in the Netherlands and therefore I don't need to pay any more in Ireland and you can get away with paying almost nothing. Instead of that, what we have proposed, I am part of a commission, an independent commission for the reform of international corporate taxation, which is headed by Jose Antonio Ocampo, and it has Joe Stiglitz and uh, Thomas Piketty and a number of other luminaries on it. But we have been arguing that you have to think of multinationals as a unit, because that's what they are. I mean, Apple is one company. It is not Apple France and Apple US and Apple India and Apple Ireland. It's one global company. So treat it that way. Treat Apple as one global company, and then every country taxes its share of Apple's global profits according to a formula based on sales, employment, assets in that country. And that would be a fair and equitable way of ensuring that Apple pays the same tax rate as everyone else. It's not a difficult idea. It's a fairly simple idea. It is, in fact, an idea that's already practiced in the U.S. across the different states, because in the U.S., the states also have tax raising powers. And the way that companies are taxed is precisely in that way, that every state will tax its share of the sales in that state. 
depending on its assessment of the national profits. So we're suggesting a similar system globally because that will actually get rid of all of the incentives to do this profit shifting across jurisdictions, which is what enables multinationals to get away with paying no tax. For the rich individuals, what we're also asking for is a wealth register in every country, simply so we know who owns how much, how much wealth where. Some countries have already started doing that. Uh, the UK has, the Norway, they have already come out with wealth registers. If you have these wealth or asset registers, at least for most important assets like financial assets, then you will know which, can, which individuals are shifting their wealth out to other countries. And you would be able as a tax authority in that country to actually exercise some control over this illicit financial flow that prevents governments from being able to access the taxes of the rich. Earlier, I was kind of referring to, to Senegal as an example of, of inequity, but it is striking going back to that example that you can have a country where something like 17% of children under five are living in conditions of poverty, chronic malnutrition, and at the same time, one engineering firm in this case SNC Lavalin has been implicated in avoiding something like nine million US dollars in in taxes at all. And it also raises questions of, of power and how lopsided treaties that enable this to happen are created as well and, and the power dynamics in that. And also lends towards one of my last questions today and thinking that given these power dynamics um, in play and given the legacy of carbon pollution in the global north what's your view on the notion of reparations and what would a truly just system of reparations look like look i in principle i am all for reparations i do believe that there has been so much damage done to the developing world through colonialism and then subsequently through imperialism and continuing damage being done today as we speak through the ways in which the financial processes are playing out, that there is a very uh, strong ethical demand for reparations. Having said that, let me be honest, I don't think it's likely given our current political economy. I, that doesn't mean that it can never happen in future, but I just believe that the current world is so unequal and people in the rich countries are so navel gazing and so unwilling to recognize that there is a bigger world out there that uh, at least in the immediate term, in my lifetime, I don't think we're going to get those reparations. Nonetheless, especially with regard to climate change and carbon pollution, I think it's absolutely essential to bring in conditionalities imposed on the biggest polluters of the past hundred years. And that's no longer in the case, uh, it's not, not necessarily cast in terms of reparations, but the responsibility of the historically large polluters. So you can't just point a finger at China and say, oh, oh you're the, one of the largest polluters today, so you better behave yourself. Because first of all, China's per capita emissions are what, one thirtieth of that of the United States, for example. So even in the current situation, they are per capita much, much smaller emitters. But also the pattern over the past 100 years 
is not one that is a significant contributor to global warming. So if you look at the significant contributors to global warming over the last 100 years, forget reparations. They are the ones that have to make the biggest changes because they are the ones responsible for this problem. A truly just system, and I, I won't call it reparations, I would call it a, a just system of attributing responsibility for dealing with, addressing climate change in terms of both adaptation and mitigation, must take into account the historical contribution of particular countries. And if you do that, then you will see that there is a very strong case for, for example, significantly larger shares in the global public investment that I've been talking about, coming from these historical emitters. There's also a very strong case for control over financial activities that continue to promote very high fossil fuel investment and carbon in increasing investments across the world. Once again, it's fashionable to point fingers at China and say the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative is encouraging more fossil fuel investment. That's true. And of course, China needs to be called out for that. But who are the biggest investors in coal today? There's some very interesting work done by the Boston University, the um, uh, Kevin Gallagher and his group, which has basically shown that out of the top 10 financial uh, resources for uh, coal investment over the last two decades, eight of them are US financial companies. So in fact, it's the US that is promoting carbon emissions massively everywhere. It's the US that is promoting more coal investments everywhere. So even when the Biden administration comes up with a big green plan and it's excellent for the US and it announces that it's going to cut down on carbon emissions itself, it is proactively promoting carbon emissions elsewhere in the world. Now, that's the kind of thing also that has to stop. Once again, it's not just about justice. It is about common sense and human survival. And I think the frustration that many of us feel is that these are now issues that are so urgent that while we may feel like stark records and that we've been saying this for a few years now and no one's listening, it's now got to the point where we are really at a tipping point. And if this message does not get home now to global leadership, then there is a real threat facing human humanity. That point about justice also being about how the financial system works and the, the fact that since the Paris Agreement came into force, nearly four trillion US dollars has been um, moved from financial companies, banks profiting from uh, coal, oil and gas is, is absolutely incredible and, and absolutely something that, that needs to change and should be common sense. And it's also striking that the World Bank sees oil and gas as part of recoveries from COVID-19 yes. and again exactly. implicates these, these international institutions so deeply in contributing to our existential crisis. And thank you. Thank you for highlighting so clearly the ways in which they're implicated and, and at the forefront of doing that. Thank you. Thank you, Harpreet. Thank you for listening to Planet B, Everything Must Change. This series was produced by Freddie Stewart and made possible by the generosity of the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung. The music and sound was produced by Ben Heidemann 
and the podcast artwork was designed by Tamika George and Pietro Garone.